Welcome to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Casperson. Hi, friends. I'm so excited today because we have Dr. Juliana Hauser, a relationship and sex expert with a PhD in counseling education, a background in teaching gender studies and therapists at the graduate level, a licensed marriage and family professional and practicing counselor herself, as well as a mother, friend, CEO, author, mentor, and founder of various sex positive education programs for personal and national organizations. She brings so much depth and width, and she's going to talk about holistic health and true wellness in all people and sexual agency and how to communicate. And now I'm out of breath. I'm so excited you're here today. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm really happy to have this conversation with you. Oh, this is, women are going to love this and the men who love them. Okay. So you say that sex is the final chapter in personal development. I could not agree more. Like, I think the work that you do on your sexual self just spills over everywhere else in life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I remember when we do that panel together, every time you spoke, I was like, yes. <laughs> and, and yes. And I, I'm so excited to that, that a lot of our work aligns. So to answer your, your question, I really think and like how I like to phrase it is that like looking at your sexuality is the final frontier of self-development. And so much of our, in my view, our, so much of our reasons here and uh, how we have fulfillment is through connections. And if you're going to have connections, then you have to have authenticity with how you show up and how you connect with others. And you have to know yourself in order to be authentic. For me, sexuality is the best way to do that. Because it is one of the hardest things to know about yourself. It is always changing. It is influenced by others. It is intrinsic. It's extrinsic. It is influenced by media and the era that you're in and relationships you've been in and where you are in yourself, like in your own self-development, where you are in your lifespan. And then there's all sorts of values and stuff and shame attached to it. So it, it is a lucky place. If you can force through all of that and know who you are and you continuously reconnect with what that means, then I think you have a leg up on knowing who you are and then making that connect with others in the world. I love it. I think it's like, you know, the fish don't know that they're swimming in water, right? Of like, we don't really pay attention to our sexual selves or it gets put on us by our family, our religion, our society, like Hollywood movies. Like you said, past relationships, I think is huge that you all bring that with you. Right. So where does a woman start if she's like, I don't even know, like, what do you mean I'm a sexual self? Like she's just kind of been going through the motions, whether it's her whole life or in her marriage. Like how does somebody even start to like peel the layers off the onion? Mm-hmm. The first thing is, is to know you're not alone and none of us were properly sex educated. It's actually like when I talk, I often start my talk with, you are owed a big apology. <laughs> you were not sexually educated in any way. And one of the biggest problems with that is that we are taught that our sexuality is our sex acts and who we're doing them with. And then all the things that shouldn't happen alongside of it. So when you step back, it is our sexuality is so much bigger than what we were ever taught. So that's why the thought of ourselves being a sexual self is so foreign to us is that we're not taught that. 
we are, we are taught that it's just this really small thing. So the second step then is to really understand who you are as a sexual being in a holistic way. And that's pleasure and desire, health and reproduction. It is how we have love and intimacy, how we connect with others. It is about so many other things besides our sex acts and what our identity is within that. Then the next thing is, is to realize that there is practice in making our sexuality normal. That's what my passion is, is helping people be able to talk about their sexuality as if we're talking about our grocery list, that it shouldn't feel so different, but it is. And to learn how to have a community, even just a few friends that you can talk about who you are as a sexual being and ask them questions about who they are in an enlightened way and in a normalizing way. Love it. Love it. And I think especially in heterosexual relationships, our definition of what sex is is so narrow that like expanding it to be like, what do you mean I'm a sexual being who like walks on the earth and eats and breathes out in parks? Like it's very mind blowing for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It, it is. And, you know, and I think that's really related to our relationship with pleasure that we are a pleasure-deprived or pleasure-indulged society. We don't really have a very balanced way of looking at pleasure. But when you understand that concept also, it also makes our sexual selves seem so much more accessible than it is of like thinking that if you're a sexual person, it means you're having sex all the time. It's wild sex. It is easily accessible. It's super pleasurable. And it's like everything you've seen in a movie which is not very relatable for most of us uh, most of the time. But when you understand, we're talking about a deeper sense of who we are. Our sexual selves is a deeper view of us and experience. For me, it's the essence of who we are. It is the purest form of us. But again, that's not what we were taught. So we hear that phrase and we're like, what is she talking about? Like, it just sounds so like woo-woo, but it, it really isn't. Yeah, I love it. I think, you know, Again, taking that definition of sex and realizing like as a human on the earth who reproduces, right? We consume the earth. We love the earth. And it's like, it's our relationship with everything. Yes, it is. And why is that so difficult for us in a larger sense to have that kind of conversation? And I think about that a lot. Is it threatening to people or to whom is it threatening or why but it's so obvious for those of us, I know you're in this space too, that when we realize it's, it is really the game changer uh, for so many of us when we can just shift over to that, that place. But it, it, so far, it's still like we're, we're kind of up against the, the curve on that. But I don't know, just thank goodness we have people like you that are helping us to see on the other side of it too. You know, the other thing for me, and I, I kind of want to go back to talking about what's important, what the action steps are, is and I've said this to you, I know we aligned on this, is that I believe that the concept of agency and sexual agency is the game changer. And that's what really shifted for me in my personal life and became the passion for my work. So when I first started researching sexuality, one of the first questions that I had was what was like the same history, but one woman was really satisfied and fulfilled and and proud of her sexual journey. And another woman had the same history or very similar history was filled with shame and remorse. I wanted to know the difference of those two experiences and and come from. And after many, many years of asking the right and wrong questions, I finally realized and I thought I, I kept thinking I had to theory sound. I'm like, nope, there'd be an outlier and that wasn't it. But it ended up being about choice. 
in decision making. And outside of the obvious part of lack of decisions and agency with consent or assault, but taking that part out of it, was when somebody felt like an agency in a situation, especially a sexual situation, then that was the difference of how she viewed the experience and viewed herself. And so when I started focusing on agency, that's really when understanding that our sexuality was so much more than our sex acts and our sexual attraction orientation, that it really was the core of who we were. And agency was the beginning and end to that, that concept also. I love it. So agency, break it down for me, is I'm owning my space. I'm here because I want to be. I'm going to take what's mine or like, you know, be an active part of whatever's going on. Am I describing agency well or would you describe it somewhere else? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that description of it. And I often will say that. And I'm glad you didn't ask to define it because I think it's a concept, not a definition. And I think it's still so new. We have to work with it. But I love talking about having a relationship with agency to figure out what that means for you. But I say that agency, it's a noun, it's a verb, it's a concept, and it's a skill. And that's why it's confusing to talk about because it's many things. But when I break down the skill of it, this is kind of my favorite way to teach someone about it. And it is that you know there's there's a decision to be made. That's the first thing. Second is that you feel confident that you can make good decisions. The third is that you make the decision. And the fourth is that you know how to deal with the intended and unintended consequences of your decision. And then finally, it's what meaning making do you have of how things happen after you make the decision? Do you find resiliency or do you wall up and feel protective and, and decide and you go back to like, I don't make good decisions or I defer to other people to make decisions? Now, when I, when I fill out those parts, those five parts of the agency, most people are like, yeah, that's obvious. <laughs> yeah, that's not so groundbreaking. I kind of I get I make decisions all the time. But if you go back in your history and start looking at the places where you have regret, remorse, or you can see a shift in how you view yourself or view your world, one of those five things will be into play. And that's when, again, that's why I think agency is so beautiful because agency is also a healer. It helps you heal a lot of your past. And it also is a protector and a proactive aspect to help you in the future. I think another way of saying it is having your own back. Yes. Ooh, I like that. It's yes. like, you know, so I think so many women, they don't want to make a decision because they're like, what if I regret it? And like, you know, the way coaches teach is like, you make the decision, no matter what, you have your own back for making whatever decision you made. And it's a game changer. An absolute game changer. It's so interesting too, because a lot of studies will show that the highest kind of development that you can have always includes the understanding of ambiguity. And we saw this a lot during COVID. Those who could not handle ambiguity, like not having certainty, not knowing what was going to happen, really struggled during this time period. And you can find that outside of the pandemic before and, and afterwards too. And ambiguity is a hard thing. Most people like certainty. They like to have answers. They like to know what's going to happen and expect. So when you don't have that then it really draws out the hardest parts of ourselves. And that's in our sexual decision-making and our choices as well. So if you can live in ambiguity and you can live with the unintended consequences of things and not make yourself wrong, as you said, like have your, have your back, then it really allows you to take more risks and it allows you to live a fuller, richer, and more pleasurable life too. 
I love it. I think this goes exactly back to like how we started this conversation of like, if you dial down the sex part, your whole life will change because the skills you use for that sexuality part, this goes into your work, this goes into your relationships with, you know, friends and family. It goes into your own self-love, right? Of like, you've got your own back. You make a decision and you live with the consequences, but you're still got your own back in it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, think about the existential crisis that we all face, which is ultimately we're alone, right? And that terrifies a lot of people, but not when you trust yourself and can trust yourself even when you've made mistakes or things that you wish you hadn't done, but you can move through them and learn from them and then still feel like, yeah, but I'm competent and I'm okay. And I can navigate these things by myself or hopefully along other side people too. And when you get that and you get it within such a complicated brew of things like your sexuality, then like you said, you can translate that to every area of your life. I love it. Let's talk about agency and consent within a long-term relationship, within a marriage, because I see this a lot and I really want your opinion on it. So I think a lot of women, again, I'm stereotyping relationships here, but a lot of women, they have sex because their partner wants to. And then they come in because they think they're broken. They think that they don't have the desire, right? We always, we're blaming the woman. And what I'm seeing in this is she's not having any agency. She's doing something because somebody else wants it. Of course, you're not going to desire it then. And I'm almost like, number one, is it consent? I mean, technically she's consenting to it, but she's not a willing active partner in it. And my other thought of it is like, is she rewiring her brain when she goes through like, you know, the air quotes of the motions in her pelvis, because she doesn't really actually want to be there having sex with this person at this moment. So that's like a huge topic. And I'd love your opinion. Yes. Oh, yeah. And that is something that I spend a lot of my practice when I'm working with couples is let's just dial back what that word consent means. It seems foreign to long-term relationship consent. A lot of the consent talks has to do with you're starting off a sexual relationship with or meeting with, and we're not doing enough discussion about long-term consent talks. So thank you for recognizing that and making sure that matters because it does matter. And so we, when I work with couples, we start with the basics of what are your communication skill and where does consent fit into that? And instead of just thinking that it's always okay because it's always been okay, it's not good enough. And I find that even the couples that have been long-term and, and would consider themselves happily married or at least satisfactory married, that their communication skills have gotten into a lull and they haven't checked in with themselves in that way. And I agree, or if we're looking at heterosexual relationships, there are lots of men that when we start really diving into their an audit of their relationship, that men do that as well, that they agree to do things they're not necessarily wanting to do and they're going through the motions because... They don't have the skills, both don't have the skills of saying, like, what do you want? And what do I want? And that's the first question, too, is like so often we don't ask each other, do you want to be doing this? And we're pretty afraid of the answer. So I do a lot of teaching of like, how do you accept the answer to the question that you're asking? And if, you, if, that's, if that's not really the question you're asking, then let's actually ask the right question to each other. And that's one thing. The other part is like owning what you want, asking yourself privately, do you want this or do you not? And when you've made that decision of it being a yes or a no, or I call them yucks for gums, then how do you bring that to your partner? And then how do you be a partner that can accept those changes too? One of the things I do, I have this four quadrant exercise and each quadrant has a different section. One is things that I have done that I would like to do again, things that I've done that I don't think I want to do again. 
things that I haven't done that I think I want to try, things that I haven't done that I don't think I want to try. It's all the premises just right now. So if you change tomorrow, your list could be very different tomorrow or have slight changes. In six months, it will be different. And that's the part of it. So we're not stuck in stone and everything. And then I have a list of a lot of sex acts that go from holding hands and kissing someone on the cheek to the wildest, craziest thing you can think of um, that may sound illegal. And so we go through all those sex acts and you have to privately put each sex act in one of those four quadrants. And then if I'm doing this with a couple, then we work on how do you communicate? First of all, how do you get vulnerable enough to be honest about what you want and what you don't want? And then how do you compare that um, to your partner's list without making anyone wrong in those differences and similarities? And then how do you find the fun of it? For me, a lot of it goes down to creating safety in couples. You have to feel safe in order to feel vulnerable so that you can connect and communicate authentically. Love it. I love it. I love it. So what advice would you give to the, again, we'll stereotype our couple here, but we have a female and she says she has low desire and she's just going through the motions and having sex with him because he needs it or he'll whine or she wants to keep the marriage happy. Like, how do we start untangling all of that? Let alone like having her explore her own sexual self like we did in the beginning of this conversation. Yeah. Like, I just worry that, that these women, like they're kind of giving consent, but they're kind of just having sex. They don't want to. Yeah. I am an absolute proponent for never telling a woman, especially to do something just to please her partner. It is miseducative for her body, for her soul, and it's not going to work. Uh, and it's not going to be a connecting thing and it's not going to be satisfying sex anyway. So there's no point of doing that. So I never, and I know people who do, who say, you just got to do it. You just got to push yourself. You got to make yourself do it or lubricate yourself or drink, you know, any of those kind of things. And I find that to be extremely dangerous. Well, you have to do it. And I think in so many ways are, we've been taught the wrong thing about libido. I call it desire instead of libido. I think we've been taught the wrong thing about it. And I have this course called The Wanting that dissects what your desire is. And it's a spider web. It's, it's rarely just one thing that goes into place. So again, you have to step back, give yourself the space to like, what is my relationship with desire? Not what someone tells me it should be. Not what media says it should feel like or sound like or look like. Not what my partner is saying. I, I hear so many women coming to me saying, I do it to check out the list so that he won't tell me and so that our marriage won't end. I was like, well, why do you want to have sex? I don't. Okay, then, then let's talk about why you're having it. Then. What would you like to do? And that often is met with a lot of silence because I think a lot of women get into a habit of not doing what they want and they're doing it for others. In so many ways, that's how we are, we are, we are gendered. That's how we are raised. To please others, to do for others and to put ourselves last and to rarely ask ourselves the question, what do I want? Yeah, I think it's groundbreaking when people realize that. Number one, the agency, right? But it's like, you're, you're having sex that you don't like. Yeah. Let's stop beating yourself up about low desire or not wanting it. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you want? And that usually like opens up a big, I think, void because nobody's taken the time to like figure that out. Yeah. And I don't use the words in my practice, low or high desire. I know there's a reason for that, but like, like why people want to have a scale of it. But that's why I talk about relationship. And it's confusing for a lot of people. So I'll say, so what kind of relationship do you want to have with desire? 
And when you can siphon out that and stop making yourself wrong and using words that make there be something that's achievable and something that is the good, this is good desire. This is like, you've gotten it right. If this is how it looks and this is what it sounds like, that's not helpful. What it needs to be is like, what do you want to feel like? What do you want to feel like? And I will sit and listen. And it may take a woman weeks to figure out what that is. And that's okay. It's just find your way there. And for me, a lot of times what we talk about is spark. So what makes you feel vibrant? Sometimes there's such a hang up with how your desire is in your sexual relationship that you have to step away from it and say, okay, so where is the spark and vibrancy in your life outside of obvious sexual connection? And if that's the easier entryway, then great. Then we find that out. What do you like? What do you want outside of sex? What makes you feel good? Take away the labels, all the other things. Take away the mom stuff. Take away the wife stuff. Take away the work thing. But you as a human being, what do you like? A lot of times women grieve because they haven't had that answer. They don't know how to answer it. But then there's so much excitement when those answers start coming. Someone will write me and say, you know what, Jelena, I like this. I'm like, great. Wonderful. What does that feel like to like this and want this? And it grows. It's contagious. And then when you find that, then you can oftentimes put it into the world of sex and sexuality. But you also have to have a partner that's willing to give that to you too. It doesn't feel threatened by a change in this chapter of sexuality and sexual connection. Yeah, well, I think it can be, you know, and I, I want to always honor and respect the heterosexual man in all these conversations because I think, you know, he's just having sex that feels great to him. Mm-hmm. Now you're rocking the boat, right? Like it might come as a surprise if you've never shared like this really actually doesn't do it for me. And I've got like something in my gut that's just telling me, ugh. Yes. Yeah. So it's a skill to receive that kind of feedback. And we are not taught how to handle that. It feels like criticism or it feels like a threat to like, wait, I thought you've been liking this all along or you've been faking it or you don't want this or I'm not good. It often goes into the spiral of unworthiness for all genders. So we have to do, we have to learn the skills of receiving that and being a person that can be safe for someone to say those things to. Once I can get over that hump with a couple, then honestly, it's like it, the world is their oyster. When you can get over that, then you can start saying, what do you want? There's nothing more exciting than having a partner that you feel committed to saying, I want to do this with you. And then your partner saying, I do too. Or honestly, I say too, like, a no is just as exciting as a yes. And that's just, again, not what we're taught. So right. if no, okay, great. Okay, good. Now we don't have to do that. We don't have to pretend. I don't have to waste the energy on that. Let's put the energy towards what is yes. And so I like saying yucks and yums um, instead of yes or no, because it seems like we just have a new relationship with that and we don't have to bring in old baggage with the yeses and the noes and the unworthiness. Like, let's just go for the yums. And let's be okay with this having different yums. That's okay. It doesn't have to be threatening to the relationship or make somebody wrong or weird or freaky. Because I was like, I was going to, I mean, I, what I usually ask people is like tips to be the communicator. I think where I want to go with this is like tips for the woman or, or the man who's listening to this podcast to receive the communication. Can we talk about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is basics that are really hard to do. So we'll talk about like, even like, what does your face need to look like when someone is risk taking? What are the things that you need to set up in the environment for there to be safety? What words shut someone down and what words open somebody up? So before we even get to the topic, 
Then I ask them to write down, I want you to say five characteristics that make you feel safe with somebody. A lot of examples are um, they listen and they don't interrupt me. That would be a characteristic of a person. That they sit there and their body language is open and they don't start, they're not shifting. They're making eye contact the whole time. So what do you need in order to feel safe? Then there's a list of five of what do you need in an environment to feel safe. I need the kids to be asleep. I need there to be no alcohol. I need us to be driving in a car. I need us to not be sitting, staring at each other, those kinds of things. Then we look at that list and you share them with each other and you introduce your concept of safety to the other. Because a lot of people have done love languages and know what that is. And they, they've understood like my love language may not be the same of how you receive it. The same thing with safety. That what makes me feel safe may not make you feel safe. And so I'm going to provide for you, Kelly, I'm wanting to have an intimate conversation. I'm going to give you what I need safety-wise, but that may not be what you need. So let's ask. You want to know your answer before you're asked. So that's part of it as well. And then uh, you, if you're going to have a relationship that's fulfilling, it has to be a relationship that's founded in goodwill for each other. So then do it. So if you are going to do the work to find out what you need to feel safe, and you're going to ask your partner what makes that person feel safe, then you need to provide it. And some people miss that step too. They don't do what's literally being handed to them. So we practice it and we practice it on something benign. Once you get that right on the topic of safety, then you can forge into the topic of safety within sexuality and saying those things to to each other. You have to practice it. It's a skill. And so you have to give room uh, for people not to get it right. Love it. I think... And the thing for me is like when you listen, because I, I, you know, I talk to so many people every day because it's like 15 minute doctor visits, right? I yeah. can tell when people are just thinking what they're going to say next mm-hmm. instead of like actually listening. Yes, absolutely. It's, and it's huge. Like the other person can tell when you're not listening and you're just like planning on what's going to come next. Yes. Yeah. So I'm not going to put you on the spot, but could, could you get five things that make, that you know right now make you feel safe with somebody to like to risk take and be vulnerable? Um, there need it needs to be quiet. Like ideally on a couch together. There's one no alcohol. I like that one a lot. I wouldn't have thought of that. Not raising voices. Anger is very threatening to me. Mm-hmm. And then somebody really wanting to engage because I think fear of like abandonment, right? Yes. Is like that somebody actually really wants to engage because of this and not is not going to reject me. That's yeah. four. That's great. See, you're quicker than most. <laughs> That's great. And then I would probably follow up with, okay, so you talked about knowing that someone wants to be engaged. I would want you to get specific about, so what behavior would let you know that someone is wanting to be engaged? Um, eye contact. They're not like kind of being aloof over here. Yes. Um, open arms, probably not, not crossed arms. It's all nonverbal, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And so again, we read and we make assumptions based on what we're seeing nonverbally. Let's give it to them concretely. And most couples, they just want to be told what is going to feel right for the other person. And just just give it to me. Just tell me what it is and I'll practice it and, and then give it right in that way. So that's the first thing is like setting the stage. Then it is, what do you verbally say? So what if, okay, like we'll just role play Kelly. So if I just, no, actually we'll we'll reverse it. If you're saying something to me and you said that you want to do something sexually with me and I'm like, what the, like, what? If I am having this shock thing, so what would be the right thing for me to respond? Well, let's say I get all the nonverbals right. 
but verbally you've just risk taken. I need to say something to you. Yeah. Uh, well, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. One that I think women get a lot from guys. Okay. Like, I need to have sex four times a week. Mm-hmm. And I hear that need <laughs> in you. Um, and you know what? So I, I really appreciate that you're sharing that that is an interest of yours. And that is one of your youngs. Uh, and I'm going to write that down. And I'm going to kind of think about where I fall on that. Thank you so much for telling me. It matters to me to hear what you're needing and wanting. Amazing. Because what, what you did there is you didn't shoot me down. You acknowledged that I gave you a need. But you gave, you gave yourself like a very... What I heard was a very solid boundary of like, you didn't need to say yes or no right away. Mm-hmm. You could be yes. like, I'm going to think about it, but I'm going to love you no matter what. That's right. And I think so, so many women are like, they just want to say yes because they want to people please and they love this person. And then they end up doing things, whether this is like sex five times a week or anal sex or whatever it's, whatever it's going to be of like, they end up doing stuff that they don't want to do because they didn't know how to have the conversation outside of the bedroom. Yes. So, if, so if a couple came to me and they had that, they, they found out that they were a difference. Like she's like, that doesn't sound appealing. This is not what I want. But the next conversation is, for what are the needs that are playing into that decision-making? So why does he need four or five? And not why is and why you're wrong, but like, what does that mean to you? To have sex four or five, what, do you, what is that fulfilling in like you? Like what's, what's under the ask? Yeah, because a lot of times what will end up happening is I just want her to want me that much. I want, like, it's not that I need to penetrate a sex and have it be wild crazy. It's that about that many times a week fulfills my need to make sure she still wants me, that she's still attracted to me. That's how I know. That's how I know I'm close to her and she's not going to abandon me. That's right. And that's how I get my love. That might be a touch might be a love language. That's so important to her. And that our relationship is, is the only thing that we can do that other people can't do together. We, it's not the kids. It's not friends. It's not work. But we get to have sex together. That makes our relationship special. And I need that to be acknowledged and validated several times a week. So if that's the case, if that's what it is then, but that's still not what she's wanting, there's other things that we can do that can meet that need and meet her need. We're just not talking that. We're just saying, I want to have sex four or five times a week. Yeah. And so the answer is yes or no. We're going to do it four or five times a week or we're not. And then it's a power play and it's a power struggle. Instead of it being what needs can we meet that can be consensual for both of us equally. Amazing. There's always something underneath the ask, right? Like there's always that Mm -hmm. like need of for love or validation or like, you know, acceptance, whatever it is, there's something underneath the ask. Yeah. And we're not taught to do that self-examination ourselves too, or we're not given the skills to ask the questions. So oftentimes, like if a, if a couple is having that argument, which is, that's a, that's a very typical thing that people come to me, but they're not having they have different sexual needs in that way. We're not taught how to ask those questions. So what would, what does sex four or five times a week mean to you? We're not taught how to ask that question, but we should be. We get defensive. We get emotional about it. We get into our own, our own head and our own needs. And that is an agency. That's a power struggle. I love it. Can, can I flip it and ask another one? Can we role play another one? Sure. I don't want to have sex anymore. Would you say there's always something underneath that? Yeah, there is. So if I don't want to have sex anymore and I'm hearing that, and that was fairly new to me to hear, 
what I suggest for people is to take a deep breath so that they can not have their emotional reaction. Cause it's, it's rare that a statement like that would be said in a benign way. Yeah. It's usually quite emotionally charged. So I would teach the partner how to take a, like a deep breath so that they can remove their reaction to that strong statement and be able to authentically say to that person again, thank you. I can tell that that was a really vulnerable statement for you to make. And it's really important for you for me to hear that. And I'm going to take a moment with it. Boom. At that moment, if we're assuming that that's a she saying that, she needs that statement to be protected. And if you come at it, like, no, no way, it's ridiculous. Or, or it's, instead of it being aggressive, it's defeatist then neither of those two things are going to be any, it's a conversation ender. Yeah. And you don't want it to be a conversation ender. You want it to, to continue. Because that's a really big deal for someone to say that. That statement is, is filled with tons of pain. And usually it's not what the person wants, actually. Right. It is, it's their last, it's like, I can't do anything other than that. It is all I know to do is to shut all of that out because there's so much. It's, it's a, not just a paragraph. It's a novel in one sentence. And so if you shut it down with an emotional reaction, you're never going to understand what the plot and, and the storyline is. So then it's about let's find out more. And I bring up that sentence just because I feel like I hear it all the time in women. Like I don't even want yeah, to sex. I feel, I feel like it's not uncommon. Can a couple navigate that on their own? Or do you think they need to see a sex therapist? Like, what's your advice for something like that? Well, it's a little bit of like, it's my mind. My, <laughs> yeah, I think it is. I think they need to get help. That's obviously why I value it. I, I think that your sexual connection with your partner is very important. That doesn't mean that I think penetrative sex is important. I think your sexual connection is important. And there's a lot of things that can happen in a sexual connection that doesn't involve any kind of penetration. And it can be very satisfying to a couple. In fact, there are a lot of couples that I've worked with that they don't have penetrative sex very often at all. And they consider themselves very happy and very sexually connected. That's just not what we're taught good sexual relationships are. So yeah, I'm here. I feel dead inside. I kind of would rather reach cheat. I don't think I ever want to have sex again. And I kind of don't care. I, I hear a lot of those kind of statements. And so when someone, especially if it, but I hear it from all genders, but again, we're talking about women. It's okay. I get that best. You get to stay in that space. Let's talk about it though. You don't want that stance to feel threatened because then you're never going to get more from it. As I said previously. So that's what I do it with a therapist too. And I think in some ways, a therapist, an objective party in this can help you sift through those questions and help people not speak emotion to emotion, but actually speak soul to soul. And that's really hard to do when you've had a long-term relationship because you're just hitting buttons of each other and you're speaking hurt to hurt instead of uh, what do we need and what we want. Can you tell us, so for the listeners, can you tell us like that you've seen that statement happen and that the relationships have like gone on to have happy sexual lives? Like, is, it, is that a recoverable statement? It is. It is recoverable. It takes work though. So whenever I have a science couples that come to me with that being the issue and it's really diametrically different. So let's say um, you're coming at it from like a two and a, and a nine scale of someone who really doesn't feel connected at all to themselves sexually and somebody who's really wanting that, that push and pull. And I'll say, I'm not going to be able to bring you all 
to the exact same spot because you, you have an automatic differences, but we can bring you a whole lot closer. We can bring you to like a seven and a four. And that is good news. I don't consider that to be bad news. We're just, again, we're not taught that. And when we can take the mindset of let's find what, who you are as sexual being separately and how that works together, then let's normalize that process. Like I'll talk about like, it's just kind of incredible. Just, if you think like, like the miracle of a baby being made, like how incredible that is. It's the same thing with sexual connection. You are two sexual beings with your own sexual journeys. That in and of itself is just kind of mystifying how we even have our own journeys. Then you get with somebody and you're supposed to magically have those two sexual journeys make sense, feel great, want the same things. And then if you're going to last more than a year, then it's magically again supposed to continuously reconnect easily with each other. No, that's just not realistic for most people. And so you need support in that. And so I think normalizing that process is an important part of letting there be goals and letting there be hope ahead. Sometimes I think that my career should be not called sex therapist or, or relationship therapist. It's, it should be hope. I'm a hope therapist <laughs> of giving people that and not false hope because that's not fair to do to anybody. But I, I think it's just so much about decluttering and then owning, having agency that allows you to define it for yourself. Each couple gets to have their own definition and concept of what sexual connection is. I love it. I, and I think for women, like so much of it is, I feel like they're just not living up to whatever expectations they feel like they have to have. And if you can turn that into like, no, you're the boss, like you're the one who has the agency, who gets to decide, who gets to drive the boat, like it's a, again, going back, it's a game changer. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think too, this is an important concept that I, that I want to teach people in as a couple, which is there's a difference between empowerment and agency. And there's a lot of talk about empowerment and we should find our voice and we need to be empowered. And that's absolutely true. But it can only empowerment can only go so far individually, and then it bumps up against somebody else's empowerment. And so agency is a bridge to that. If you are truly in your agency, then you have all these skills of empowerment and all the things I talked about previously in the skills, the five parts of my view of agency. But you add the extra piece, which is, and then you allow someone else to be in their agency. And that's tricky. It's tricky in a long-term relationship, whether it's a friendship, a family member, or your spouse and partner. And so hone that skill and respect it in one, one another and work on not being threatened by someone's agency. Work with finding the team of that and the connected pieces instead of focusing on where things are so negative and so misleading. Which when you can sit and sift into that, then your stance doesn't have to be so strong. It, there's a permeability that doesn't feel like lack of consent. It actually feels full of consent. I love it. I'm kind of just envisioning like boundaries or like boxes, right? Like you're in your box and whatever anybody else says doesn't diminish your box, right? right. You can like, you can allow them to say whatever you want, they want, and it doesn't diminish your box and you don't have to like agree or disagree. They just get to say their box and you get to be in your box and like, it's a beautiful thing. It is. And your box doesn't diminish theirs. That you can stand and, and yours and have your own place. And and what's difficult then is what about when your box and your boundaries and their box and their boundaries don't, there, there doesn't seem to be a middle ground. What do you do? 
how do you forge that? And that to me, that's the place when you know you need to find a third party to help you find where those places are and to be the person that's focusing on the, on the couple as the client instead of the two individual people. Beautiful. That's really good. I think tips for people when they're like, at what point are we stuck? And or what point is bringing somebody else in like really going to help us? Because we feel so stuck, right? Yeah. Cool. So tell people where where they can find you and how they can work with you. On all social media, it's Dr. Juliana Hauser, and I'll go on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And then my website is dr-juliana.com. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today. I know that this was like such a great conversation and I have more ideas for future conversations. So I hope you'll come back. Oh, great. Thank you so much for having me. I love the work you're doing. Thank you for doing such good in the world. Thank you. Ditto.